0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we are delighted to be speaking with Dr. Bink-Hollum, a man who wears a number of academic hats. He is Arabic scientific manuscripts curator at the British Library. But as if that weren't enough, he's also doing a postdoc project at the University of Warwick on the alchemy of Abu Bakr al-Razi, which is fascinating stuff that we will hopefully be able to talk to you about in a separate Schwepp episode. bink Thanks very much for coming on the Schwepp, much appreciated.
1: Oh, thanks very much for having me, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Now today we're talking about magic squares, al-faq in Arabic, about which you've just published an article which is actually kind of a monograph because it's such a huge article, putting this, the subject on a kind of firmer footing for further work to be done. What is a magic square, first of all? And I think the next question would be, why should we care from the history of Western esotericism standpoint? But that will just emerge in the course of the conversation.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, a magic square, first of all, is a mathematical entity, let's say. And the the, the simplest way to look at it is it's a, a way of arranging numbers in a square diagram so that any way you add them up, either horizontally, vertically or across the two corner to corner diagonals of the square, uh, you get the same number right so the simplest one is is the three by three square it's like a tic-tac-toe board. you put the numbers one, two three four five six seven eight nine into the, each of the cells of the tic-tac-toe board and anyway you add them up if you've arranged the numbers correctly, you'll get 15 mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, if you just put the numbers starting either at the top or at the bottom, either at the right or at the left, in their natural order one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then you add them up, going from through the, the three numbers that sit along the line uh, defined by the the endpoints of the corner-to-corner uh, diagonal line, uh, you'll get fifteen that way. And in fact, that works for any magic square up to you know a million by a million. Wow. Cells. Um, So you can always figure out what number you're aiming for. And that number you're aiming for, that number that you can get if you add up all the numbers in going horizontally vertically or the two corner to corner diagonals, is usually called the magic constant or just the constant Mm. uh, of a magic square. And so, yeah, you can work out the constant in a completely non-mathematical way just by plotting, putting the numbers in the right order and counting it up.
0: Right. See image one in our uh, episode note. Let's get back to it. Let's see if we can do like a history of, of magic squares, as it were. Um, your People are highly recommended to go check out your article in the recent volume edited by Leana Seif, Matthew melvin Kushki, Francesca Leone, and Farouk Yahya, which is a tour de force. But let's, let's just go through the kind of basics here. It all starts out in China, doesn't it? Or does it?
1: Uh, I think it probably does. It's certainly the earliest dateable... References to magic squares go back to Chinese literature and probably much er earlier, if not much, much, much earlier, undateable, or at least as no one's figured out how to date them yet, uh, Chinese texts refer to the magic squares in quite an oblique way. And when I say magic squares, they they actually only refer, this earliest literature in Chinese only refers to the three by three magic square. Yeah.
0: So the three by three is kind of where it all starts, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and you'd kind of expect that because it's the simplest to arrange. You could work it out almost by accident if given enough time. You know, given an afternoon, you could keep rearranging the numbers, the, the nine digits, um, until you until you got them to, to add up. It wouldn't take that long. So it and would there's be... actually a very simple graphical way to, to do it as well. So this Again, is Sudoku,
0: basically. Someone did a Sudoku in the mists of time. and Something the, like that. The three-by-three three uh, magic square was invented. <laughs>
1: And this, like some, some people say that the, the, this earliest literature, the Chinese literature that talks about this magic square. In these texts, it's not even written as a, a sort of tic-tac-toe square with numbers in it. It's usually written as, um, well, a depiction of a turtle's back with some symbols that you can count up to make into numbers. But it's not uh, It's not as simple as just looking at it going, wow, that's a magic square. You kind of look at it and go, I don't know what that is.
0: That pushes um, us into kind of a divinatory context though, doesn't it?
1: It's definitely a divinatory context and it's it's connected with early Chinese imperial legend. Then this diagram was used in various divinatory contexts. It's not easy to say what these were from the earlier period, but they got connected with the floor plan for an very early imperial Chinese, so back in in the sort of realm realm of legend, the floor plan for an imperial palace, okay, that should have been laid out in three by three rooms gotcha. to make a magic square, and the numbers go in each one. So this is really quite early for this stuff. Certainly earlier than we have any datable texts in Chinese. Certainly earlier than any Arabic texts, and earlier than anything in in Greek or Latin. So yeah that's the the earliest thing going on and then you have the, like the higher order magic squares so magic squares are four by four five by five and, and on and on and on the bigger and bigger ones they come into chinese literature in the 13th century but only after they have been written about in arabic and persian and it seems like it was like like they may have come from china but they've come back in force
0: <laughs> yeah
1: having gone to the west for a little bit longer
0: yeah let's talk about this islamicate literature on the magic squares
1: uh, so the earliest, the earliest reference to magic squares in Islamicate literature is, again, the three-by-three three square. Um, and it's first written about, or the earliest datable text is written by a guy called Ibn Rabban Tabari, a physician who lived during the early Abbasid caliphate. And he wrote a large medical, sort of medical, cosmological, philosophical work in which he talks about using the three by three magic square with some other ingredients and some other i don't want to say ritual it's more of a, a medical procedure but it involves all sorts of strange stuff rubbing things on people and and uses uh, phrases from from the psalms and so it certainly has a sort of religious aspect to it as well as the magic square to, and it, he uses it to help a woman give birth so if a woman's having a hard time in labor you have to write the magic squares Uh, the three by three magic square on a pot shard that's never touched water, right? Two of them, put them under her feet. um, And then you smear some other bits and pieces on her. And the magic square has to have a bit of this, one of the Psalms written around it. And and then the baby will come out more easily. The thing about this procedure, it's the most long-lived procedure in Islamic literature to do with the magic squares. So the magic squares come into their own you know, big style, and they're absolutely all over the place from, say, the early 13th century, probably a bit before that. They're all over magical texts, magical medical texts. They're really all over the place, being used talismanically, being used yeah. for all sorts of things. But this one, this procedure, gets used again and again. So I should say that even Rabban tabari was writing round about 850 A.D., And this procedure, almost exactly the same, gets carried on down and you can find it into the 16th, 17th century, probably later. I mean, I I don't don't know what the latest date of it, but it just goes on and on. And in various versions of it, yeah, you have to hold, you have to write the magic square and hold it in front of her face so she looks at it. In others, you have to put it under her feet or put it under her hands and feet if she's squatting. You you usually have to put it under her and show it to her. Right. And that's really interesting, actually, the showing it to her, Mm. because... Round about the same time that that Atabari was writing his medical work in which the magic square appears, there was a, a work being written in Sanskrit, a medical work by a physician called vrinda vrinda wrote a Siddha Yoga, which was a medical compendium, in which he describes pretty much the same practice. And he he also wants the, mag- the 3 by 3 magic square to be written and held in front of the woman's face so that she can gaze upon it. Yeah. And it's interesting because in an Indian context, you could see a connection with a, with a yantra, with a sort of mandala or a pattern, a diagram that one gazes upon in meditation. That will have some effect upon their inward state, upon their upon their meditation. So you can see some sort of connection there, and it, it seems to make actually more sense in an Indian context than even Robin Tabari's context, because he was a Central Asian Arabic-speaking Christian, reading the New Testament and the Old Testament in Syriac, and learning Bible from his father. And you think you know yantras don't really come in in a big way.
0: Yeah. So, th- so that's a really interesting <laughs> part of this this tradition of the three by three utochic square. That's a word I learned from your article. Utochic yeah, meaning it's helping a with birth. Word. Um, a
1: word I use more in writing than in speaking. Yeah,
0: but I've just gone ahead and used it. This very long tradition seems to involve. Always writing the square on a substance, usually the pot shirt that has never touched water, but sometimes uh, also like a, a pa- bit of paper that's never been... I
1: think it's usually a rag.
0: That, oh yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, a rag torn from paper. a garment that's never yeah, touched but, water.
1: Yeah, the problem with that, though, is the word chazaf or chazfa, like a piece of a piece of a pot shard or a piece of ceramic, a piece of uh, earthenware, and khirka, which means like a piece of fabric a rag yeah look almost exactly the same
0: in right way. okay so you could even posit some manuscript corruption and maybe it was always yeah so let's versa. let's Go say the, the original version was probably the pot and uh, think... the piece of fabric might have been from a corruption that's a nice I little think... bit of uh, detective work the the diagram obviously has power through and we'll get to yeah. the, the number theory that kind of develops around these things but yeah. um she has to look at it and then you apply it to her body so it's not just effective; it's it has to have some kind of psychological um, component. To
1: yeah, it. yeah. With this early one, you, the the person who's going to be affected by it has to engage with it, right? And and through their eyes, that's really through their interesting, mind, not not through their skin. Later um, on, you can just strap it to a leg. Just to, things get easier later on.
0: Yeah. Now, before we get into the flowering of this tradition, let's just follow the thread of the three by three, because in the twelfth century or the late eleventh. We have um, Al Ghazali, the great mm. sort of intellectual, writing about. It's a very interesting argument. He's arguing against the so-called philosophers, of which mm. you know by a modern uh, definition of the term philosopher, he would be considered a philosopher. But he means something very specific—a kind of not so into revelatory knowledge, going back to first principles approach, which he finds problematic in the and, Islamic. And someone who's
1: the real inheritor of a of a long natural scientific tradition.
0: Yeah. World Ibn Sina, basically, and his ilk. They are arguing that things like the different numbers of rakat you have to do in, in the Islamic prayer, depending on what time of day it is, are just completely arbitrary. Like, why mm-hmm. should I do three at Maghrib and then four at Isha? Like, what's the difference? And, and Ghazali says, it's obvious that numbers have hawas, have occult properties. And mm-hmm. even you lot admit it. In fact, everyone admits it because everyone knows that the three by three square can be used to help a woman in childbirth. Now, why should that be? Well, we don't know why it is, but it 100% is the case and everyone knows it.
1: And everyone admits it. I like, yeah, that, so he's chosen that as like a piece of common ground.
0: Yeah. Surely no one would deny this. this. (laughs) But that's interesting because he is, although this will not convince any modern, you know, experimental scientists, he's appealing to um, empirical experience, right? We all know that this is the case. Presumably, like, everyone has a relative or has a friend of a friend whose Mm -hmm. baby wouldn't come until they showed them the three-by-three square, and then it came, and then that just, you know, sort of proves it. And he can use this as a a common ground argument. It's very, very interesting. It also shows shows just how rampantly pervasive this three-by-three square helping with giving birth tradition was.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I wonder how many births were attended to by by people who were ready with the magic, with the three by three magic square. I mean, I've just been in touch with, with someone who's got access to a lot of really interesting talismanic material from the National Museum in Bosnia. And she has found that they've got a birth girdle that I think is from sometime around the 17th century that's got magic squares all over it. So it seemed like when, when you're getting ready to give birth, you might just have the magic squares on hand at a certain point, and perhaps that was already kind of ready. So any birth that went well, you well you can just attribute it to all the good preparations that went into the magic squares and what, and probably all sorts of other things that you do to get ready for birth. But I think the other thing that's interesting about the Al-Khazali connection is that in the later literature, the three by three square is often called the square the Muthalif al-Ghazali, the the, the the threefold of al-Ghazali. And so it's attributed to him. And in fact, there's a whole literature on magic squares and on using them for various sort of magical purposes attributed to al-Ghazali. There are absolutely loads of manuscripts, supposedly wow. by al-Ghazali about this subject. So in the, the writings that are actually, certainly by him, he really only brings up the magic square as an example of of uh, something that seems arbitrary, but we all know it's efficacious. Yeah. So come on, don't, don't tell me that seemingly arbit- arbitrary actions and numbers don't have any effect. Uh, but later on, it's like, oh, because he said that, he must know all about them. In fact, he wrote all this stuff about what, how to do all sorts of crazy magic with it.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. So th- that's a, a little studied field, the the pseudo-Al-Ghazali talismanic yeah, no magic squares same, literature. literature.
1: I don't know. <laughs> that would be a big study in its own right. Brilliant. Um,
0: let's talk about the further flowering of the tradition. So going back to the ninth century now, we've mm-hmm. got our three by three square. Maybe let's talk very briefly about the kind of direction it goes mathematically. Yeah. And then the direction it kind of goes into connections with astral practices, connections with letters and letterism and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, well, you can't really...
0: And you can't separate, separate
1: the two. The two, really, because the the direction that mathematicians took it in and and I should probably qualify this when we say when I say mathematicians I'm usually talking about mathematician astronomers very often astronomers who were working under royal patronage at endow- royal endowed observatories and they weren't simply working on pure mathematics mm. they were working on astronomy which at that period was why does it have a royal endowment well mostly for astrology. So they were working out the specifics of astrology, doing the observations so that the predictions and the other astrological practices uh, can be done perfectly. And their mathematics, or their, their interest in mathematics, revolved around and, and went side by side with their astronomy astrology. And many of them were also physicians. So they were working in many fields. Right. And drawing, drawing inspiration and, and crossovers from, from many different fields. But these early mathematicians in the starting in the early tenth century, anyway, possibly going back further, but we don't we know about them from the from the early tenth century. People like Al-Buzjani, people like Al-Khazini, a little bit later, were writing texts on magic squares, in which they were going well beyond the three by three square, and they were looking at ways of constructing squares of the higher what we call the higher orders basically bigger squares. <laughs> so mm. four by four grids, uh, five by five and upward. Um, and they were trying to work out methods, reliable methods by which you could lay out squares and even universal methods. So they were, they were
0: looking out. at algorithms, is that right? Like the algorithm for how you construct a given yeah, square. Yeah,
1: these would have to be, these were often described as algorithms. This wasn't, this wasn't described as like an equation or something. It, these, this is a series of steps and they use the language that was at hand for them, so often they're described in terms of of chess moves. So describing the construction of magic squares using the knight's move, for example, two forward, one to the side, becomes an easy way to talk about, about how you move around in the space of this grid, uh, or the, the queen's move is sometimes used. So they try their best to come up with as close to possible as universal methods for for constructing squares. It turns out you can't. There's not a single universal method that you can use to construct all squares. It depends on whether they've got an even number of cells, an odd number of cells... And, and various other things. but they, So they were coming up with the methods that were as close as possible to universal, given the different subsets of uh, or sets of orders of squares, different types of orders of squares.
0: And they don't stick um, with squares, do they? We start to get triangles. Oh,
1: and... no, but that's a little bit later on. They, okay. they we start going in all sorts of directions. And so actually the, the very earliest text that we have in manuscript, and partially we have it in manuscript, but not embedded in another text, is by a guy called uh, Abu Qasim Ali Al-Antaki, and Lantaki uh, wrote a commentary on the arithmetical introduction by Nicomachus of Garasa. Mm. Yeah, Nicom- Nicomachus of Gerasa, uh, from Jarash in Jordan, writing, yeah, sometime in the second century, he's writing a work on number theory. This arithmetical introduction is a work on number theory. It's not really a, a, a handbook of mathematics. And he's coming from a Pythagorean, a, well, a, a, a Platonic Pythagorean point of view. His work survives in Greek. It was translated into Arabic, actually, by, by Thabit ibn Qurra in the, in the late ninth century. That already existed in Arabic. And then this guy, Al-Anthaki, wrote um, an Arabic commentary uh, on their arithmetical introduction, in which one of the sections is all about magic squares, which is interesting because Nekomus of Garasa's uh, arithmetical introduction doesn't mention magic squares anywhere. And then Al- al-Buzjani takes it up and is, is much more uh, mathematically astute. And then it, that sort of goes on and on. And that tradition carries on mm, at least into the 12th century, after which point, well, there, there's a parallel tradition that we've already kind of looked at, which is, is the magic squares in a medical tradition, using magic squares to get positive health outcomes, let's right. say. And that sort of morphs into a, a, a wider talismanic tradition, using these magic squares as, well, later on as, as talismans rather than as simply as charms, because I think this earliest one, just stick, using the three by three squares, is more of a, more of a sort of charm. There's, no, yeah. there's not any particular theory behind how it should work other than that, it's got, like you mentioned, خواص. It's got active properties within it that you can't explain. That doesn't mean they're actually inexplicable. It just means yeah. we can't explain them. The greatest example of this being the loads the magnet, the yeah. lodestone. You know, we all know that it that if you put some iron filings or something iron next to a magnet, it's gonna move towards it, but none of us know why.
0: Yeah.
1: So it clearly, and that's خواص. It's yeah. got a power to affect things outside itself, and they're occult in the sense that they're hidden. And so the magic square has this. Yeah. It has this chaos. We don't know why. And so we're um,
0: differentiating between a charm and a talisman in this context, in that the, the talisman is, is... Is it basically because a talisman is more theoretically complex and takes more um, kind of science to Oh, we'll, to we'll make, get into
1: right? that. I think that the talisman, I, for, for me, with my understanding, is that the main thing that the talisman needs is an astral connection got it it needs to be working because of the stars because of the planets yeah whereas the three by three magic square and you hold it in front of somebody's face there's no nobody's invoking planets nobody's burning incenses that that are appropriate to certain planets so Yeah. yeah i think it's more of a we don't know why this works but it does situation so how uh, and in fact with a tabari he's connecting it with um with a psalm that talks about release
0: right so there's um, the, I I, the, the sort I of can't. correspondence with the theme of the psalm and what you want to happen yeah so uh, another kind of node or important node in the transmission of this stuff is the al-Safa, right the brethren I, of purity
1: these brethren of purity the al-Safa, writing in, in uh, in Iraq, in the probably early 10th century AD, they have a, a section of their, their huge rasa'il, the, the letters, a huge encyclopedia of sciences, occult sciences, this sort of thing, on geometry and a section on music and a section on magic. And in in the section on geometry and in the section on music, there's a long discourse on magic squares. In the section on magic, there isn't, interestingly. Hmm. And they talk about the first seven magic squares, so three by three to nine by nine. They talk about these magic squares being about sort of harmony and order and balance. And also they talk about the combination of uh, geometric shapes, in this case, the square, and number, so Hmm. form, form and number. They talk about that both Geometrical forms and numbers have their own chawas, and when you mix them together, further chawas are formed that are not predictable. You can't predict what's going to happen. And when you do this in a very balanced and ordered way, uh, you create somehow a more powerful chawas or a, a special chawas. You don't just stick numbers. Apparently, if you if you stick some numbers in a triangle, you, it will have some property. It will have some effect. But if you do it yeah, yeah. In, a, in, a, in a balanced and, and ordered way, you can somehow strengthen that. And interestingly, they, they then, unfortunately, they give an example of how you can use the magic squares as, I don't want necessarily to necessarily say talismans yet, but as some sort of charm, so magically. And again, they use the example of the three-by-three three square. And they go through the same, the same sort of story, using it for childbirth and, and various other things, um, but here they make one big difference. They connect it with the moon and they connect it with, with nines, the moon being in a ninth house. For a moment, they connect it with the moon, but then they connect it with other astral events that have to do with the number nine. But the, it's the first time that you see a connection between these magic squares and stars. And they say, "Oh, we'll we'll talk more about this in our section on magic." But weirdly, they they never do.
0: The section on magic um, is a confused text, though, with multiple and, recensions. Yeah, it
1: has its own strange history. Yeah, but yeah, that's really interesting. And, and but it's not till a little bit later on, all the way over in Islamic Spain in Al Andalus, that you get a character named Maslama al Kutubi, who wrote a very famous book called the Ghayat al Hakim, and the Ghayat al Hakim is um, basically a grimoire one of the one of the most famous early Arabic grimoires. And it's a grimoire of, of astral magic with a lot of talk about talismans. Interestingly, he doesn't have a big section about magic squares. Sort of tellingly, I think he doesn't. And he he died in the first half of the 10th century, I believe.
0: So what is that telling us, if it's telling us anything? Obviously, this is an argument for Well, at for least silence,
1: by, the, so. by the time... By his time in Islamic Spain, there wasn't a a big tradition of um, using the magic squares, using all sorts of different magic squares for talismanic purposes. But actually, it's known that he traveled widely in the East and studied in the East. Some people say he may have even been one of the Ikhwan Safar authors. Mm -hmm. And it's likely that he was the person who brought the uh, Rasail of the Ikhwan Safar back to Al-Andalus and so it was key in its dissemination in the West. Mm. So even though the Echon al-Safa have all these, these first seven magic squares, um, and they talk about some sort of planetary astral connections, and they talk about using them talismanically, for some reason that does, that's not enough to get them into, into the Ghayat the al-Hakim. Mm. The Ghayat al-Hakim, though, does have a section about the three-by-three three square, where it very briefly talks about it being useful for childbirth. Right. But he's the first to use the term wafq mm. for this.
0: And this becomes and, and the standard term for the magic squares in Arabic, right? Kind
1: of. Yeah. Kind of a standard term. It becomes part of the standard vocabulary around them. And there are so many ways to, to refer to them and, and to refer to parts of them. al Kotobi talks about the three by three square, calling it a wafq. But actually he calls it, he's talking, he says 15, the wafq.
0: Right. So, so he talks about, about the, the constant as defining constant. the square.
1: Yeah, and this word "wafk" means something like harmony or balance, and and it becomes it becomes a, a major word for magic squares themselves. Or, can, but it can often mean specifically the the magic constant, the harmony that exists within it, which is the fact that it adds up to the same thing. It's from this that the chawas comes. So, this is the cl- as close as we can see into the occult property of these magic squares is the number that it that it adds up to everywhere. So then the science of making these magic squares and using them and knowing all the lore about them is called Ilm al-Awfaq. It's it's like the the science of the harmonies, but it could be the science of the magic squares, the science of the harmonious number that results from the magic square and therefore the the knowing about the khawas that results from that. But so yeah, Masama Quntubi is the first to to talk about that. It's a really brief reference. It doesn't show it doesn't have a diagram of the magic square although Later readers of the Arabic and the Hebrew translation manuscripts often uh, kindly put a diagram in the margins, sort of like, ah, this is what he's talking about. Right. It's this, thing. but reading it, you just it says something like, oh, the waf that's fifteen. Yeah, helps with childbirth, and you don't really know what the heck that can be. Yeah,
0: so that's probably uh, not an a, a example of, of esoteric writing, but rather an example of everyone knows what I'm talking about. I don't have to bother. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, a probably. Diagram. Probably. But an interesting thing, thing happens with the, um, the Ghayat al-Hakim and the later tradition of the Magic Square's use as planetary talismans is that a bit later on, also in Al-Andalus, in the 11th century, a mathematician, uh, well, an instrument maker and astronomer called Ibn Zarqalu, writing in Toledo, writes a handbook of, the, of how to use the first seven magic squares, three by three to nine by nine, as talismans dedicated to the seven planets. And in that, it doesn't really talk much about constructing the squares mathematically. You just copy the diagram. You have to copy it on a certain metal or, or other material that's related to the planet that you're working with. You have to uh, do it at, at the right time, Yeah, observe the right astrological moment at which to carry out the act. Once the talisman is created, you burn the right sort of incense under it, things that are connected with with the planet. Oh, and of course you have to do this on the day of the week that's dedicated to the planet. Um, so it's very uh, astrally engaged. So this is in
0: the 11th century and we have a very familiar territory if, for those who, who are familiar with the sort of astral influence practices that we call the Islamicate talisman tradition, right? So the, you've got suffumigations, you've got the right planets, you've got to observe the kairos, you've got to um, do the right materials that the planet loves, and each planet has its own magic square that it also loves.
1: And that seems to be the new addition. So the, all the rest that you were just talking about, the, the making of talismans, that goes back much earlier in this Islamicate tradition. It's the, it's the saying that we can, that the talisman now can be in the form of a magic square, Right. Uh, not in the shape of some sort of image of some thing.
0: So is of it right to person. say that Ibn Zarqalu is the first guy to to make that connection that survives?
1: Yeah. Going back to the Khayat al-Hakim, although Maslam al-Qutabi didn't talk about magic squares and, and using them as talismans, when Ibn Zarqalu does do that, it seems that a lot of the information he gets about uh, what sort of incenses to burn, what kind of materials to use. And even a lot of the in terms of phrase he uses about the kind of talismanic effect you can get from working with different planets seems to come straight from the Gayat al-Hakim. So there is a Gayat al-Hakim connection. It's just that, yeah, Ibn Nazar Qalu has, has, has brought the magic squares in properly. right? And yes, right. that does get translated into probably first into old Spanish in the court of, um, Alfonso X El Sabio in the 13th century, and then probably separately into Latin later. Right. And we don't have the old Spanish translation. We have we have part of one section. We have part of the section about uh, about Mars and working with the magic square of Mars, incorporated into a larger astrological talismanic work that was written, in, again, in, in the court of, of Alfonso the 10th. But we do have the Latin. And the Latin survives a bit better, although, yeah, it's funny. So if you compare the, the section on Mars in the Latin translation and the Spanish, what survives of the Spanish translation, you find that the Spanish translation is, is fuller and closer to what Ibn Zarqalu wrote about Mars. Right. Uh, whereas it seems like the Latin, the, the version in which the Latin translations come down to us is really stripped down. And hmm. it's a bit more sort of like just the fact, just like cut straight to the how do you use it? Basically.
0: Procedural like, text.
1: <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's use it, which is mostly what the text is anyway. But it's, it's just a bit more stripped down. So that, that's what makes me think that they possibly this, the Latin possibly didn't come from the Spanish, but maybe directly from the All Arabic. Right. Yeah, from a later date.
0: So Bink, let me tell you a story and tell me if I've got this right. We see the three-by-three three magic square come into the Islamicate literature quite early on. We don't even know how early. Everyone agrees that it's useful for childbirth from our earliest sources right down to the early modern period. Mm. Mean, and, and not just useful for childbirth, but incorporated into a ritual procedure, which we might mm-hmm. want to call medical, we might want to call magical. Again, it's, these are just modern categories messing with our heads. Um, at a certain point, quite a bit later, like a few centuries later... Than the earliest appearance of the three by three square, we start to see both proliferation of interest in these things, and in, in, in from what we might call the mathematical side of how to construct them. Like, what kind of tricks can you do? Is there a way to standardize it? Can we do a triangle? Can we do a circle? Can we do all these kinds of stuff? This is like a, can we a, do
1: three dimensional shapes? <laughs>
0: wow! So that that tradition is we haven't talked about the sort of later iterations of that, but that goes for centuries and centuries and centuries. But meanwhile, in the tenth century or thereabouts. The step has been made to say that not only do these squares have uh, occult properties, but they can be in, they can be integrated with the thriving science of talisman making, astral talisman making, and just add another layer to um, mm-hmm. the effectiveness of your talismans.
1: And yeah, definitely hinted that yeah. right.
0: And then by the time of or by the text of Ibn al-Zakalu, like not only that, but each planet has a square that's associated with it. Bob's your uncle. Mm-hmm. That and goes
1: the into and a practice that goes with it, and a sort of ritual.
0: Right, that goes into Latin, so we can see there a conduit for that particular flavor of astral practice, talisman making, going into the Latinate world in the High Middle Ages, thirteenth mm-hmm. century, fourteenth century. Um, meanwhile, in the Islamicate world, we're going to see one other layer that I'd really like to talk to you. About which is the the letterist side of things, mm-hmm. so you're happy with that little summary let's move yeah. on we'll move on from that into you're the realm so
1: many, so many directions from there
0: yeah well let's let's but... hone in on Albuni, and I know you think maybe this goes before Albuni as well, but the sort of delightful, I guess you can call it occultist Sufi milieu that Albuni is writing in where we bring in this alphanumeric cosmological view of things and letters become very powerful and also numerical things. Go. Uh,
1: yeah, so I guess a bit of background on letterism. Mm. Is maybe a Always a good thing. So yeah, there's quite a few different things going on. One is that you have a, a sort of letterist... Or, or um an interest in letter speculation and letter theory that sort of goes alongside number theory if that makes sense yeah um being thought about and practiced and becoming important in al andalus in the tenth century mm. and a, a big name uh to go with this is ibn Masara, who was. I mean, he's usually called a, a, a renunciate or a mystic. It's too—it's going too far to call him a Sufi, although later traditions might sort of incorporate him. He was certainly not thinking of himself in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote some works on the huruf, on the numbers, in which he talks about cosmological importance of numbers, giving an, onto- an, an ontology to, to number, uh, sorry, to, sorry, to letters, to letters. Uh, they gave them a lot more importance than, say, just using them as as graphic symbols for 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 phonetic reasons. Right, uh, outlined a way of interpreting the letters that make up a word or the mysterious letters that appear before some of the surahs in the Quran, uh, giving a way to interpret these that looks at the deeper significance of letter, the cosmological significance of letter. And he, Ibn Masara, he wrote some texts that survive on this subject, not particularly long texts. He uses or seems to have advocated this sort of thinking in his interpretation of the Quran and in other philosophical speculation. But what he doesn't seem to have done is use this in any sort of magical way, saying, okay, if we know this about the deep meanings of you know, how letters are connected with the, the four elements and the seven planets and this sort of thing, then we can rearrange them in different ways to to do stuff. He doesn't seem to have, have gone there, but that doesn't mean that people who followed in this tradition didn't.
0: Right. And people who are interested in the Kabbalah here are going to be sitting up and paying strict attention because we're talking about the very terrain in which the Kabbalah will develop, but, but several centuries beforehand, right? An Arabic tradition looking at letters as somehow cosmologically significant and also as, mm-hmm. as being interpretable through kind of mechanical, numerical procedures that have nothing to do with their use in, in writing natural languages.
1: Absolutely. And then you get a, a later tradition of, again, renunciates, mystics, whatever you want to call them, who actually, there, there is a name that they call themselves the Mu'tabirun, which comes from the term Ibra, which means crossing and apparently refers to um, a crossing into the unseen, right. which was a sort of, uh, I don't want to say object of their meditation, but something that certainly seems to have happened during their meditation, a crossing into the unseen world, a direct experience with the unseen world. And these Mu'tabirun, Ibn Masara is counted amongst them, but then there were later people, Ibn Barajan, Ibn al-'Arif, Ibn Qasi, um, who all lived in Islamic Spain? The, these guys lived in Islamic Spain during the early 12th, late 11th, early 12th century, and they were taking things a bit further and, and bringing in more of. They, they were they were writing Quran, um, Quranic commentaries and and other works of that sort of of that sort, using letter speculation as part of their interpretative framework, but also bringing in some astrological elements, talking about large cycles of time, bringing in other aspects of occult sciences and an occult scientific outlook. Um, and it seems that out of this, perhaps, or this is the sort of area, it seems like we might need to look to find the earliest join-up between magic squares, talismans, planetary talismans, and letter theory that becomes El Nahuru for letterism. And and the, I think letterism is, is yeah, born when these things come together.
0: For those who are just really in, unfamiliar with this territory, the pioneering work of Noah Gardner and others has, has helped us explicate the importance of this figure, Al-Buni, who is a, well, a man of many parts. He's a Sufi. He's often called a mystic. He's often called a magician as well, someone who's involved in magic, who has a, a worldview in which, there's a kind of rich semiotic overdetermination of of the Arabic letters. They're all numbers. Everything in the world can be interpreted through letters. Letters have power. They have occult properties. Mm -hmm. They can be um, used in lots of different ways, mathematically and and so on. Some would say magically. And this is part of kind of physics, as it were. This is part of how the world works. Um, It's like a kind of implicate order of reality. And what you're saying is that we might have a new window on the, how we get from earlier stuff to boonie. like he didn't just. How
1: we get from earlier stuff to boonie and also how we get how magic squares become a really important part of letterism. Right now, something we we haven't talked about, which is a really basic, fundamental uh, point to make here, is that when we talk about letterism and number theory as distinct, right, they're much less distinct in uh, when you're working with a, a an alphabet like Arabic like Hebrew, like Greek, like Syriac, like many others, in which the letters of the alphabet were also used as numbers. Now, so we're all familiar with what we call Arabic numerals, which actually in Arabic are called Hindi numerals because they came from East to the Arabs, and, and we call them Arabic because they came from the East to us. That that These are distinct from the letters of the alphabet. But that's not the only way to, to write numbers in Arabic. You can also use the letters of the alphabet as numbers, and this is a, a method that was often used by astrologer astronomers when they wrote their tables of astronomical observation data. This was often the the numbers there were often encoded as letters rather than as the, using the Arabic numbers mm. uh, for whatever reason, and so it was quite normal to look at numbers and see through them as letters. Whereas for us now to look at a number, uh, sorry, a, a, word, a name, for example, and try to break it down into its numbers and then add them together and think, oh, what's the what's the hidden meaning of the numbers that we can extract from that? It's all pretty abstruse and complex and weird. But for someone who was trained in astronomy, astrology, for example, so an educated person using the, the Arabic alphabet, it'd be totally normal to look at letters and see them as numbers. There's no jump there. And the same with,
0: with Greek. So those who are interested in the Greek tradition want to go back to episode forty-seven of the Schwepp where we interview Joel Kalvismaki, who's who's done pioneering work on how this number-letter equivalency, just in terms of notation, comes in the Greek tradition to mean something more simply than notation, and and you you start to see the rise of numerical interpretation of letters of of written text. Um, but the point you raise is super useful that this isn't. A totally abstruse thing that only an occultist would learn. Like we think of, no. you know, sort of these golden dawn occultists in the 19th century, spending hours crunching numbers in their heads, trying to find the Christian Kabbalistic associations between different words, right? This isn't something you have to learn in this kind of difficult way, because when you see Aleph, you just see one as well, naturally. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, you've, and it, it's already an established system. Whereas if you're using the Roman alphabet, where, of course, the the letters of the Roman alphabet can be used as numbers, Roman numerals, but you don't use all the letters no. when you're working with Roman numerals. So if you've got a name or a word that doesn't have, you know, your M, C, I, L, X, and whatever in it, you're out of luck. Yeah. So you have to come up with an artificial system that could work, but it's not already in people's heads. Yeah. Whereas in Arabic, all the 28 letters of the alphabet have a numerical equivalent. Yeah, so that's already there. And yet Another thing we haven't mentioned then is... A big part of the way that letterists or people working in, in the tradition of the ilm al the science of the letters, when they're using magic squares, they're often placing words into the squares. Because another part of the, a big part of the this science of, of letters is for the most beautiful names of Allah. Mm. this set of attributes, name, named attributes of, of God often 99 in number, that have particular power, resonance, applicability to the Godhead, this sort of thing. So letterists were very interested in working with these names. Yeah. Supergroups were and are interested in in working with these these names. So these these most beautiful names of God are often incorporated into magic squares. So you form a magic square around a name, You choose the name for for whatever reason, to do with the attribute itself. You interpret the name based on the the quality of its letters, the numerical and other qualities of the letters that make up the name. And then you, you create this numerical balance and harmony within the square that really sets things in motion, apparently. But this whole technology around being able to take any string of letters, therefore any string of numbers... And place it into a magic square, and then rejig all the numbers around it to create a magic square that could just accept any string. Took some serious mathematical thinking, and this mathematical thinking seemed to take place in the eastern part of the Islamic world.
0: Right. You talk about in your article two main centers for um, the development of magic squares, and the first, yeah. and they, they're separated in time a little bit. So the first one is the Buyid court in Baghdad. And then later on in Marv, in, in the east, in the sort of increasingly Persianate world, yeah. you have another kind of blast of um, development in the sort of
1: magic Yeah, that's right, Well, in this early period, actually, the part of the Islamic world that, that's called the Khurasan, eastern Central Asia, which is really part of the, the Persianate world, so Persians being spoken there in various other Central Asian languages, um, and Arabic has been introduced to the area. This This part of the the Islamicate world was really, in these early centuries, the heartland of the Islamicate world. The heartland in terms of scholarship of all sorts, in terms of sciences, in terms of famous religious teachers, um, really in terms of everything. This was, this was really the heartland. And so it's not surprising to find a big center of astronomical, astrological and mathematical patronage in these powerful emirates that existed out out east. So, yeah, you're saying in Marv, which is in what now uh, Turkmenistan, I think, mm-hmm. was at, at the time I'm thinking of in the early 12th century, late late uh, 11th, early 12th century, was some at sometimes the capital and sometimes just a very important city in the Saljuk realm, so ruled by these uh, Turkic people, the Saljuks, who were very powerful, in the Eastern Islamicate world. And they seem to give patronage to all sorts of sciences, including all sorts of occult sciences. And so at least three, some surviving, some not surviving, works of uh, mathematical, I think, works on magic squares were written under their patronage. And it's probably under their patronage or, or patronage of other people in that part of the world that Mathematicians started working on how do you add names? How do you put names and other words into these magic squares? And and so I've seen early examples where people just put things like, Ahmed made this. Right. Sort of like like an old artist in in Europe might write, you know, if his name was Ahmed, for example, might write Ahmed. Or like, yeah, oh, I mean, well, and this
0: reminds me of the earliest um, appearances we have of this in Greek, where the, the so-called uh, esopsephic inscriptions, where someone will make a poem where the lines yeah. all add up to the same number. And it's a kind of like elegant, cultivated joke for the cognoscenti. It's not, there's nothing esoteric going on, except that it's kind of hidden, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. But there's no kind yeah. of reference to higher wisdom or anything like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And when you get that later on in Persian literature, and perhaps it's used in Arabic as well, we get not exactly isopsefi-like. Well, actually, you do get isopsefi. We can talk about this maybe in another (laughs) another time. There's a a big tradition of that, that blends in with the magic squares as well. Uh, But anyway, these uh, mathematicians in the Islamic East work out uh, systems that that will allow you to put words and names and and other um, blocks of you know, strings of, of numbers or letters into your magic squares. And then that mixes in with the larger talismanic tradition of magic squares and the larger letterist tradition to lead to your, your sort of typical letterist magic square.
0: Bing Hallam, thank you for elucidating this ama- amazing and complex tradition of transmission of lore about the magic squares. Now, whenever someone sees a magic square in an occult diagram or an occult tome of some kind which they do all the time they're going to be able to kind of give a lineage to that which is a really great thing for the history of western esotericism stay esoteric
1: thanks very much (laughs)